From New York City, this is Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics near and far from personal finance. Any questions or comments, I can be reached at mark.penziner at bernstein.com, or you can call me directly at 212-969-6655. Well, again, it's September, and that means back to school. Last September, actually two Septembers ago, pre-COVID, We did what was our first back to school episode that we called Finance 101. And it was one of the most listened to and well-received episodes I've ever done. So now that we're back in September, I thought we'd graduate up to Finance 201 and I'd bring back in the guest slash host from that old episode, Damon Mandalara. Some of you may know him as DA, host of the DA show on CBS radio. Damon, welcome back, my friend. Thank you, Mark. How you doing? Good. Um, we're going to structure this like last time. I'm going to give the, the reins over to you. So it's, it's now your show for the next 20 minutes. Um, listeners, we, we haven't scripted this. So if this goes terribly wrong and Damon asked me a bunch of questions of Finance 201 that I, that I don't know, then we'll edit it later or look like fools. So Damon, it's up to you. Well, everywhere I turn right now, cryptocurrency is everywhere. And you know it's mainstream when Tom Brady and Giselle are doing commercials for a crypto firm FTX. So my biggest question, and I would imagine it reflects a lot of other people's thoughts, are what does the average person do with crypto right now? I think the average person does nothing. Is that... That, that may be a disappointing answer. Um, I, I think you have to think of crypto as a very speculative investment. Now, that means it could be wildly successful or wildly unsuccessful, right? You put in $1,000 and you wake up and it's worth virtually nothing. You put in $1,000 and you wake up a year from now or five years from now and it's worth $20,000. So it's got enormous swings in it. The... The concern I have broadly about crypto is that there's a lot of hype around it's the future. And I'm not going to debate whether or not it is or isn't the future. But the the challenge I have with crypto is it's very hard for me to understand how to value the currency or the companies that are in that business beyond just saying it's the future. So I want to buy it now because it's got to be worth more later. And I worry that there's a bit of a 90s.com, or even if it was today, you'd say Amazon or Apple, where people are looking for the next big thing. And clearly this could be, and I'm not suggesting that crypto generally isn't, but I think the question is, what's the right value of a Bitcoin or a Dogecoin today? It's hard to know, right? It is not legal tender. Um, Also, you know, you watch crypto the last week or two, there are days where, you know, it's up or down five or 10% in a day or in a week. That's enormous volatility. I mean, if you think back, Damon, to like the height of the COVID crisis, when the market was down five or 6% in the day, it was like the world was caving in. Cryptos fluctuate 10%, you know, it feels like once a month in a day. So I think the average person should be thinking about it if they have the opportunity to put just a little bit of money in it to, to feel like they're in the game, I think that's fine. I would be hesitant to think of crypto as my 
way to retire or way to get rich. I, I think some of that money's probably already been made by the people who were truly on the ground in the space. So just from kind of brief researching and conversations with friends or family, I think generally my understanding is Bitcoin is the oldest and most sturdy of the cryptos. Ethereum might be next. Dogecoin kind of feels like it's very dicey amongst others. Is it fair to say like if you can ride out the volatility, you could put money in Bitcoin or Ethereum or one of the ones that feel more anchored and stable? And if you can, if you can just sit sit there and let it go for twenty years, it's smart. Or even that, you think is risky. I think even that is risky. So just to to stretch the metaphor, what if Bitcoin is MySpace? I'm not saying it is or isn't right, but we could have had this conversation twenty years ago about MySpace, saying, "Look at this social media. This is revolutionary." If I can live with the volatility, why don't I just take you know X amount of money and put it in MySpace and check it 20 years from now? Well, MySpace is gone, right? And and Facebook is the thing. So is Bitcoin MySpace or is Bitcoin Facebook or is Ethereum Facebook or are neither of them either of them? I, I think one of the ways maybe better to think about it, and this is not always easy to get it, an easy investment into the space, but is to say, Think about the gold rush in America, right? 200 something years ago. You could go prospect for gold and do really well. But a great business in the gold rush was to sell picks and shovels, right? To sell blue jeans. You made a ton of money by being Levi Strauss. You made a ton of money on the gold rush by not business, but being gold adjacent. So think about all the technology and computing companies that are supporting the Bitcoin cryptocurrency blockchain revolution. I would be more interested there because I can, you know, selling blue jeans in, in the gold rush was, a, was an easy business you could value. I mean, not an easy business, but traditional business you could value. I would prefer to buy tech companies that are leading in the crypto space than I might solely buying into the crypto itself. Again, I'm not anti the crypto, but now you're taking a whole different level of risk. So in the, in the aftermath of the pandemic, or we're still in the pandemic, what have you, everything, construction costs, costs of goods and materials have gone up. So I had somebody come in to give me an estimate on, on digging a pool. And I mean, the estimate was so outrageous that it was probably three times what I thought the highest level could be of the estimate. And I said, <laughs> you know, this is kind of insane. And he said, yeah, I know, but you know, the cost of materials now and the delays and everything, and it's just the way that it is. And, you know, you could wait, but it's probably not coming down. Like nobody in this industry ever takes an excuse to bring down costs. And I couldn't tell whether he was just, you know, selling me a song or if that was true, do you think the construction costs of things like additions, home renovations, you know, new kitchens or pools or what have you, do you think the costs will never come back down that it doesn't matter if you wait this thing out or not? It, it, it gets very specific here. And, and the, the, the phenomenon you're touching on is broadly speaking inflation. Um, great segue. That's, that's why you're a national radio host, because next month, the podcast is going to be all on inflation, right? So, so listen next week for an hour with, an, with a bunch of inflation analysts to 
to get more on this. But to your question, um, think about the input costs for whatever it is you're doing. It's the materials and it's the labor. Um, all you have to do, whether you're in New York City listening to this or London or your local town or Los Angeles is, is go to any you know, strip mall and, or restaurant and you will see help wanted signs everywhere. And so there is a, a labor constraint in, in the economy, which is pushing um, prices of goods and services higher. In particular, you see that in the labor slash construction industry, right? The second thing is you have a whole lot of demand for things related to home, home improvement, okay? So if you have not enough labor, you have a ton of demand, material prices are high, and you have um, supply chain issues. So you have bottlenecks and everything from shipping to ports and trucking. All of those things push prices much higher. Um, do I think all of those prices will exist at a higher level for one, two, three years? I don't think all of them will. Um, you can look at a chart for timber, lumber, over the course of this year, 2021. And there are points in time where you go, oh my God, right? The uh, cost of a two by four is three times higher than it's ever been. Like the cost of an addition or a garage is astronomical, just, just the wood. But then over the summer, timber had its worst month ever as a commodity in terms of pricing, right? So then you say, well, is it on sale? Well, it's not on sale, but it's a lot cheaper than it was three months ago. So I think there are going to be parts of the home construction industrial complex where the prices are going to break a bit, but you can speak to other experts. You talked about pools where that industry would say for the last many years, we haven't been able to push pricing like we wanted to, to get our margins. And this has given us the opportunity to reset pricing. And so I don't think something like the, the pool industry prices are going to come down much because I think this has finally given them as a market some pricing strength. So I think you got to be you know, very specific about, am I talking about a pool? Am I talking about a kitchen? Am I talking about appliances? That That's all going to figure in. I mean, you talk about pool, you know, demand is through the roof. At least I know it is in the Northeast. I would assume it is all around the country, right? There were worries about chlorine shortages this, this summer. So do I think your pool estimate is coming back down, you know, three or a third of what you thought it would be? No. Do I think the rate of change continues to go higher like it has been? No, I think it probably levels there. I think there are other parts of the construction field where if you could wait a year, pricing will probably get a little bit better. So that, that shortage of labor is really interesting to me because my wife, her family, so my in-laws live in a, in a beach town uh, in, in New England. And so this is a seasonal community and the restaurants had a really tough time and the bars and the resorts and the hotels had a really tough time staffing. And that I totally understood because it was seasonal. Then last week I traveled out to Boise, Idaho, and they have massive labor shortages as well. And they Everything that we, we went to after 10 o'clock was closed, takeout only, et cetera. And I thought this was so interesting. So I talked to one of the restaurant owners in Boise, Idaho, and she said, you know, there's just, there's a lot of people that decided after 
stimulus checks ran out just not to come back to the workforce. And I said, well, how, how do that, how do the restaurant communities then survive from here on out if servers and wait staff and, and dishwashers and cooks and everything or whatever at hotels, et cetera, just don't come back. So what do you think the future is of, of those labor shortages? You can even see it in um, Amazon pushing their, their wages, I think to a minimum $20 an hour. Um, you, you can see the labor shortages in like truck drivers. And if you don't have truck drivers, it's really hard to get the goods and services and materials around this country. So you can look at all the charts in the world to try and get an answer to this. And I do, but I, I think some of the answers are more um, like kind of just open your eyes and talk to people and you get a feel. So you're talking about, you know, bars and restaurants in Boise, Idaho. I've talked to, you know, very high-end restaurants in New York City that will tell you the same thing. We, we've, we've got people who want to eat at our restaurant and spend money, but we only have one shift, the servers and cooks and and chefs. And so we can't be open seven days a week and do lunch, breakfast, and dinner because we, we can't work people all day. You know, we can't work one shift 24 hours a day. What changes that? <clears throat> you, you, you noted the first thing, the um, stimulus checks, right? Pandemic checks. Um, those ran out in September. Now, the question that nobody has a great answer to is, okay, if people saved some money, through the pandemic because they got stimulus checks. And I think, you know, people's generally speaking, discretionary spending was less during the pandemic because they couldn't go out to dinner. They couldn't go to a ball game, right? They generally spent less. Do they have some money saved up that it is allowing them to not go back into the workforce immediately? I think some people thought the stimulus checks will end day one, day two, everyone goes back to work. That hasn't happened. They have, if, if people have money in saving, can they extend that runway? One. Two, is if you're a restaurant, if you're a, it doesn't matter, and you had a company that needs help, do you get to the point where you have to wage raise, uh, excuse me, raise wages to get people to come to work for you? The answer to that is likely yes, right? You've got to entice people with higher pay to come work. Well, the challenge is if that starts to happen, this worry about inflation, is gonna become more real. Because once you have wages going up and prices going up, you can get into a bit of a wage price spiral and then you can get some real inflation. More on that next month. The other question in the labor force I think is also really practical and it relates to childcare and schooling, which is to say, if people aren't going back to the office because of COVID restrictions or COVID worries, doesn't matter. And children are, you know, not in school five days a week full time because of COVID or classrooms are going to Zoom. Does that make the availability of labor less likely? Meaning I, if I've got to be home with my daughter or another couple has to be home with their two or three kids, does that mean only one of the adults is going to work, not the two, right? So if, if the school system isn't there as like a childcare system, does that constrain the labor force because workers have to be home providing their own childcare, not sending them to daycare or school, et cetera? We don't know the answer to that so clearly. And so if you said to me, what is 
you know, one of the more interesting economic questions over the next few months, I think it is the, the, the labor question. There are other parts of the economy, you know, typically when the economy shrinks or goes into a recession, it's because we've overspent, like we got too high, we got too hot as an economy, we built too much stuff, we hired too many people, and all of a sudden like that bubble burst and you got to shrink, right? And so that shrinking is the right sizing. Here, we didn't overheat, we hit a pandemic. And so the question is, does that mean the labor recovery is going to be much slower because lots of companies, maybe not in the labor part that you're talking about, Damon, where it's like, you know, using your hands, but where companies say, you know, what, I wasn't running over hot. I'm a 10 employee company and I didn't go to 15 because I got greedy. I was at 10. I had to let go of two during the pandemic because of the pandemic. I actually can run my company with eight employees, not 10. And that's better for business. Then you don't go back to 10 employees so quickly, which means your labor force doesn't get back to 10. This, I think, is a really interesting dynamic. How do you manage a recession that wasn't because you overheated? You're managing a recession because it was entirely brought on by um, an outside shock in a pandemic. So I think the question is going to be what happens with wages and does that get people back to work? I think you can't extract Delta from this, the pandemic. That's going to drive so much of the stories over the next six, 12 months. So with that being said, a lot of people are still working from home and they have that option now and they might be doing home renovations and trying to build out offices or they're working from home permanently and they're looking at a home equity loan. So is this a good time or a bad time right now to try to to leverage the value of your home into a home equity loan to do some of that stuff? Or should you be looking to use your savings to do that? Well, so the way I typically think about borrowing debt is what's the cost of the debt versus what am I earning on my money otherwise, right? Interest rates are really low today, okay? In any historical context, which means that borrowing wherever, right? A mortgage, a home equity loan for a business, whatever. Borrowing rates are really low today. So to your point or to your question, Damon, it's an attractive time to borrow because the, it's, it's cheap or some people would use the term, although not literally, it's free money, right? Now, if you can borrow at, I'm just making up a number, 3%, but your savings account is earning zero because not only are interest, you know, interest rates being low are helpful if you're borrowing, but they're bad if you're a saver because you're not making anything on your, your checking or savings or money market accounts at the bank. So if you need $100,000 just to make a number for a renovation and you say, wow, I could borrow cheap at three. That's amazing. It's free money. But you've got 100000 in the bank earning zero. I don't think it's a great deal, right? Because you're, you're, you're paying the bank 3% while they pay you zero. So you're losing 3% on that that interest, what we'd call arbitrage. <laughs> if you can borrow at three, but you've got your money in an investment, use your old example, Bitcoin, or in just a stock portfolio, it doesn't matter. And you're earning 10, just picking a number. I don't want to sell my investment that's earning me 10% a year, right? When I could just go borrow at three and leave the 10% return in place. That way I'm making seven on that spread. So you always want to make sure the money you're earning, what you're earning on your money is more than what you're paying to borrow money. Okay, so always think about that as the trade-off. So it is an attractive time to borrow. 
because money is cheap, <clears throat> but only be borrowing if you're not effectively earning on your money. I think that's a half-baked answer. Well, no, it's it's interesting. And, and so I'll wrap up with this question and that's about refinancing because there's been really attractive rates for a while and maybe some people already refinanced their home or their car loans or their student loans or what have you, but rates are still low. And so you're looking at, should we refi again? Should we wait? Do, do these rates stay low? Because a year and a half ago, they were saying it'll never be this low ever again. And a year <laughs> and a half later, they're still that low when you're like, well, I shouldn't have been scared into doing something a year and a half ago. So I know there's no way to, to fortune tell, you know, how long they stay like this, but do you think there should be like an, an active thought on, hey, if we're going to refinance any of our stuff, do it now and, and don't, don't risk it going up? Well, I don't think there's any harm in doing it now because it's, if you do it now, I, I don't think you're going to get a better deal tomorrow, right? And if, if you refinanced a year ago or in your example, two years ago, it's, it's not like you gave up a, such a much better deal today, right? You, you just maybe did it early, but I, I don't see a harm in that. So I think it's well worth looking at refinancing if someone owns debt, what, whatever their debt is, right? Whether it's business debt, whether it's corporate debt, it doesn't matter, right? If, if, you have, if you're borrowing money and it's at a higher rate than you can get today, I think it's well worth looking at refinancing and, and talking to a bank or a broker and seeing what the refinancing costs are and, and seeing if you're better. I don't think it makes sense to wait to think you'll get a better deal tomorrow. The question is, to your point, are interest rates going up from here? Well, we would all think so, but to your point, we've been wrong about that for the last one, two, three years. So again, no harm in doing it now. If that inflation stuff comes through that we talked about five minutes ago, then interest rates are likely going to go up and then you'd wanna refinance sooner rather than later. So I don't think you lose by refinancing now. I don't think you lose if you refinance in the last year or two. I mean, if you look at an interest rate chart, even if you didn't get the lowest of the lows, you know, we will look back at this period of time and think, oh my God, I could have borrowed on my mortgage at three, like whether it was 2.8 or 3.2, like that's going to be really low. It's really low on any chart. It's almost like if in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, your money market was paying you eight, nine, 10% at the bank, like today you take eight, nine or 10, you wouldn't care which one of those, right? It'd be like, that was an amazing deal. So I think refinancing today or getting lower rates today is a really good deal. I think it's worth looking at in, in the short term. I don't think like you have to do it tomorrow, but I would start to look at it because I, I think that low rates aren't going to last forever. And if they do, you don't lose by doing it today. So, so you have something to do. I've given you homework, right? Yeah. Well, and so let's just say that you you have a rate at like three two five or something, and now you can get it at two nine nine. Is it worth trying to refinance just to save that quarter point, or is it one of those things where the cost of doing so doesn't really make it financially you know sensical to do it? it it's very specific. And I would say in those, that, that one's probably not big enough of a spread, but it is worth calling the bank and asking them to run that calculation for you and what those costs will be. And if there's closing costs, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's not worth one's time to put in that call. 
right? That's, I think it's, well, you know, let them run the numbers. You don't have to do the work and let them come back to you with a proposal. And you say, it's not worth it, it is worth it. But, you know, if you refine this in the last year, it's, I don't know that you need to again, but if you've been sitting for three or four years, it's a phone call, right? You know, banks are happy to try and get your business. So I, I, I think it's worth the five minutes of your time to, you know, call your bank. Right. That help? That makes sense. Yeah, good stuff. Well, Damon, thank you for doing this. Finance 201 is complete. Um, on Finance 301 next year, we're going to do algorithms and advanced math, if that's okay with you. <laughs> I was told there would be no math. All right, so we'll get a different host. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing this. To our listeners, feel free to email me at mark.penzner at bernstein.com or call me at 212-969-6655 on on this or, or any other topic, we've got a whole library of stuff from this past year related to and not re related to the pandemic. And Damon and I touched on interest rates and inflation. That's going to be a, a much deeper dive in, in next month's episode. We only ask that you uh, rate us or like us wherever you get this podcast. And until next time, 